Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Who I Became podcast, where I interview leaders who share their stories of success, failures, that have made them the people they are today. And I'm joined by Jim McGuffey. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon. Thanks for me on your show. No, it's a pleasure to, to have you. And Jim, you're one of those um, people, uh, you know, when I've got to start reading some of these bios and resumes, they get pretty long, but it's important for the listeners to know the caliber of the person that you are. And I know that you spent uh, nine years as a police officer. You've got 47 years um, in total within law enforcement, including training. So we're starting to give away your age here already, um, Jim. Uh, you've got 26 years in armoured security working for um, Brinks and Loomis. Uh, you currently um, are a private security consultant working with government contracts in high-risk um, countries. And also you have a House of Worship chair for the American Society for Industry Security, and you've held that position for, for five years. And I know that you hold free industry um, security qualifications, you've got a BA in criminal justice, and you've got a master's degree in management. So you, you're a great person to really talk to today to understand um, how you achieved all that. So, so welcome. Thank you. And I guess the, the first thing we you start is I know that um, you retired after 26 years in, in armoured uh, security. So maybe tell us a little bit, um, Jim, about what do you do now? Well, for the past 10 years, I started my own business as a security consultant. And I do a lot of uh, cases that have to do with armoured car um, incidents working for both uh, the plaintiff and defense attorneys and also for uh, uh, companies. And I've worked, um, uh, let's see, I've worked for governments uh, in, well, in Canada for a couple of cases um, involving the armored car industry. And also I've uh, worked for um, companies, not countries, but companies in South America regarding the armored car industry and then in the United States, obviously. Yeah, and I know one of the things that you've been doing post-retirement, and we're going to talk about Brinks and your time at Loomis uh, a bit later, is that you're the House of Worship Chair for, I've got to keep looking down because I know as is, but I had to research what it means as a bit of a mouthful, but the American Society for Industry Security. So that's a position that you've held for five years. And, uh, you know, worship safety is one of the sort of the, the hot, topics if you like in security you know it's the, the the everyone wants in in worship security everyone's trying to figure out how do we keep our soft targets and uh, churches safe so so what's it like being the chair for that um, for that committee what is it what does it actually entail for you well i've been an asis member since 1981 and house of worship chair for five years and it's uh, been an honor uh and privilege for me to serve as the committee chair, which is part of the Cultural Properties Council. I've uh, I've learned uh, a lot from my from those that serve with me on the committee. Um, they're they're just uh, tremendous assets to have on on such a committee. I've had uh, outside of my say ten years of experience as a consultant working with churches and other entities. Um, I spent sort of 14 years in church administration uh, positions, such as vice president of church council, um, security risk uh, manager, um, 
in program manager and so various positions for approximately 14 years. So I've had a I've had experience from both working on the inside and, and the outside as a security consultant, which I think has has helped me to uh, be effective. Now you've had a lot of leadership experience, um, particularly when you were at Brinks, when you were a, a VP director of sort of security um, there, you know, and overseeing armored security. I mean, that must be a very difficult task. But there you were overseeing a workforce that wanted to be there because you were paying them to be there. Um, so, so how is it different overseeing a committee of volunteers that all have that sort of common interest of of making House of Worship safe? I mean, uh, what, what's that like? Well. With the um, houses of worship, I learned a long time ago uh, that it, it's it's very challenging. They're an open and welcoming community, and we, you know, we want to encourage people to come and visit us, share share their faith at our facilities. But yet, we have to uh, figure out how to balance the, uh, you know, the the safety and security side of that. And sometimes that becomes very challenging. And then we also have the uh, the funding side. I worked with a place of worship up in uh, Philadelphia 10 years ago, and we're discussing a, a item that for 200 bucks could have solved the security issue. And, and the person looked at me and said, Jim, 200 bucks doesn't sound like a lot of money, but we're operating in the red. And from that moment on, I said, I have got to focus on counter uh, procedures, security strategies to mitigate their risks that are very cost effective. And that's where I've dedicated a lot of what I do to cost effective security countermeasures. Yeah. And what about the people on your committee, though, um, Jim? I mean, is there is there a difference between managing a paid workforce and volunteers? So I don't know, um, you know how large the, the committee is, but, you know, everyone is giving their time. I mean, what, what's it like to oversee a committee of volunteers? Well, we have about 15 on our committee and it's not difficult at all um, because, number one, they're good people. They're professionals, they're knowledgeable, they're experienced. So... My main uh, goal is just to try to share my experiences and to um, help generate uh, documents that can be uh, disseminated freely out there with uh, places of worship. So I, I don't consider it much of a challenge because of the, the people that work with me. Yeah, and I guess if we go on to your time at Brinks then, so there's some people that might, when they hear armoured security, they could still be wondering, well, what does that actually, what does that mean? I mean, when I hear armoured security, I associate those with the, 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 the guys and girls that have the sort of the, the metal cases as you're seeing them walking out the ATM or going in and out the banks. Do you, do you want to start off telling us, you know, what does armoured security look like? Uh, and then I know there's sort of uh, three or four key points that you learned during your time in leadership there. I will. And Brinks uh, um, Incorporated is a, a tremendous company, and they're the oldest and largest um, armored car carrier in the world. And and I did work for them for 22 years, and it, it was uh, it was a, a pleasure uh, to work for them. I learned an awful lot about security during that time. I was uh, area general manager, um, and then regional director, uh, regional vice president for total of uh, 18 years out of my 22 years with them. The others I served as branch manager and supervisory positions. But, you know, it's about managing 
profits and balancing risk with profits because you're really managing risk. And yes, you do manage, you have to manage the frontline uh, people and, and their, uh, you know, their uh, supervisors, but, but those men and women out there on the street, they have an extremely dangerous job. I just, I can't emphasize enough how dangerous it is doing what they do. I mean, I, I've been out there on the streets with them and they'll go in to service check cashing places in these cities, you know, Chicago and, and all the large cities. And, and I've been there with them in a lot of those cities and you'll walk, you know, you'll, you'll have your gun drawn, holding down by your side, carrying, you know, the money inside and outside and the, the gangs will be there, you know, going like this you know, like they're going to, you know, they're going to shoot you, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just a daily occurrence, very high risk. So I, I can't say enough about, you know, those people that make, make the profits for these large organizations. They're, they're, they are the ones that I tried to uh, really make sure that I did the right thing by. In getting, uh, answering your question a little more, you know, there were four things that, uh, I based my decision on in trying to balance risk and profit. And that was, is the decision good for the customers? Is it good for your team members, your employees? Is it good for the stockholders? Is it good for the company? And if the answer is yes for all four of those, it's most likely a very good decision. You just, you know, you, you always want to keep your frontline people in the forefront of your decision-making process, but you've got to, it's got to be yes for all because the companies must make a profit or it's, it's no good for anybody. Yeah, and I know managing, you know, an armored security where you say that some people are sort of walking down the street, you know, and people are doing sort of holding sort of gun symbols as if, you know, to their heads and there's something. It, it can be, and it sounds like quite an intimidated position for, for some of these people. I know that one of the things that you told me are that um, complacency is the enemy of security. And I think everyone in security would say that, but um, some security positions carry more risk than others. And being an armored security officer, um, you know, is quite a high risk. So, so what do you mean by that? Complacency is the enemy of security. Well, it's in that sort of work and also in law enforcement. And, and I served years in law enforcement, but in the private sector, especially the armored carrier work, you make hundreds and thousands of stops and nothing happens. It's very easy to become complacent. In law enforcement, we make hundreds and thousands of stops, traffic stops and nothing happens and it's very easy there to become complacent the problem is that when we become complacent the chances are we may not be coming home that night to our family so the challenge is how do we work with our team members those frontline people out there whether it be in law enforcement or the private sector to make sure that they don't become complacent. That's our job. 
Yeah, and I guess I've got to pause there because that's a, a challenging follow-up question. But what, what does that really look like? I mean, it's just, is it continuing the education, Jim? Is it sort of mindset? Is it culture of the organization? Um, you know, how, how do you break that complacency? It's all of those things. Culture is all. I'm just giving you, I gave you a feed in there, Jim. I have to say culture is a huge part of it. But you you do a lot of daily things. You, maybe at dispatch, you're you're communicating, you know, talking, asking what's going on, where where you at on your stop, and anything uh, suspicious out there. You have safety meetings in the morning before they go out, you know, whether it be in law enforcement or, or the armored car business you know you meet with those people that you, that are going to be out on the street and you talk to them what happened yesterday anything going on anything we can do to make things a little bit more safer and secure so it's it's just something that you can't do with training and then say okay i covered that topic that's good for this week you know yeah move on it's an ongoing daily event yeah, and as a leader, you know, there's many challenges working around um, in a private security um, force, I'm sure. And, you know, most leaders, uh, you know, I see young leaders where they make decisions and it's always yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and I have heard, and I do believe this, that a leader grows by their nose because saying yes is always easy. So in an organization where, um, you know, the security force um, are often could be either underpaid or, or lowly paid. Um, I imagine as a, a, a sort of VP, you must have had to make difficult decisions that might have had sort of had that negative impact against, you said, the sort of uh, the, the balance of profit and risk. Um, so is there any example you can give us to as a leader when you've had to make difficult decisions that might have had sort of an adverse impact against you or the, the organization? Well, I, I've made a lot of decisions that were very difficult. And again, four questions. Uh, but one decision comes to mind, and, and I'm not, I don't want to say the company, it was, it's a great company. But I had a uh, notification from one of my superiors that said one of their largest uh, customers wanted the frontline people in, in my region, in this particular city, which was very dangerous to service their location by relinquishing their firearms and putting, leaving them inside the truck. And I wouldn't so, do but, it. so for armored security, you were saying that they wanted them to down their guns yeah. and walk through with a, a metal box full of, full right. of money. Okay, I just want to make sure I'm hearing that right. In dangerous areas. In dangerous areas. Okay, yeah. Sounds yeah. sounds the right thing to do, Jim. Where, where was the where was it where was the challenge for you? Well, it, it was our, it happened to be the second and maybe the first largest customer for the entire U, U.S. operation. So my immediate response was, I'm not, I cannot allow this. It goes against our culture, everything that, you know, that I know to be right by not doing. Yeah. And I I sent back a a note and talked to the uh, person and said, I can't do this. You're going to have to give this customer a 90 day notice. And if they wanted longer, I would have gave them longer. 
to find another carrier in this area. A day or two later, it came down from the very top that, Jim, you've got to find a way to work, but I will work with you. If you need to hire two extra people, because we I had three-person crews here, if you need to add two, if you need more cars, more equipment, whatever you need, find a way to make it work. Now, with that, I could make it work, and, and we did make it work, and it was even safer. But when you say no to your immediate, well, either your immediate superior or the next level up, it's not always a good thing to do. Most of the time, it's not a good thing to do. It may not affect your a career there, but it could affect it down the road somewhere. So you make those kind of decisions quite often. And my thought was, you know, the bottom line is you've got to take care of your people that are making things happen for you regardless, regardless of the outcome for you as a person. Yeah, and I guess that can be maybe one of the challenges of being a manager and a leader is the, the early example that you gave, I have to keep coming back to it, you know, this risk and profit is that any organisation, even if it's a non-profit, needs to find revenue so they can do fulfil their mission. Um, and that can be challenged against managerial decisions. But, you know, hearing that you stand by your, your employees and knowing what when to push, because as you say, you know, a, a negative decision or not maybe necessarily a negative decision, but a decision by you, which is considered to be adverse by your organization, might see you as being not on board, uh, you know, not following the, the party line. But why do you, where do you get your confidence, Jim, to know that, I need to stand up. I need to fight here. I think that comes with, uh, with experience. Sometimes you make some wrong decisions, you learn from them. But I, I, I think that I came up through the ranks and I think that makes a difference. You know, you, you understand, um, what the frontline people are going through, whether it be in law enforcement, you know, as a patrol officer or, in the armored car business, um, working on the trucks. You you understand what they're going through and you, and you put yourself in their position. And, and when I was uh, promoted up through the ranks, because uh, I, I was at a supervisory level, you know, maybe three years and then I started moving pretty fast up the ladder. And But I never forgot about those people that are out there putting their eyes on the line every day. And I would go back when I was a regional VP, a director, and I would jump back on those trucks again, just to make sure that things hadn't changed over the past 10, 15, 20 years, to just stay in touch with reality. Yeah, I guess, you know, as we sort of sum up your 26 years within armored security, what's the biggest takeaway? What's the biggest thing that you learn about yourself, perhaps working in that industry? Well, I made some mistakes. I hired some uh, people that were not right for the culture, for the organization, but I, I moved them on quickly. So I always said, it's not a sin to hire the wrong person. It's a sin when you hire that person and then you cover up their mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens all the time. So I, I learned, you know, just, you know, never... Um, deviate from your core values of what you've learned, what you've grown up with to know is right and, and stick with that moral compass. Yeah. And I guess, you know, maybe that's a segue into another 
sort of piece of your past, Jim, is that I know that you're a police officer for nine years, but you've got over 47 years experience working in and around law enforcement, not only training officers here within the US, but you also go to high-risk countries, you know, Pakistan, within Africa, within the Middle East, and you sort of train and educate um, foreign police departments as well. So looking as to perhaps where... Um, the US police are today, you know, there's a lot of adverse press against them, and particularly maybe against some of the things that you've just said, that, you know, you had the morals as a leader where you would challenge. And if we pick on the the, the tragic event in Minneapolis with, with George Floyd, where um, not only was he killed by a police officer, which is very sad, but there are other officers there that perhaps didn't take action. And we know that not all police officers are like that. You know, I'm a former officer, you've trained them. You know, it's unfair to label everyone themselves. But do you see any parallels as to where the U.S., um, police um, sort of departments are today in the type of person they could be hiring where we've got officers that have seen someone you know, kneel on someone's neck, which ultimately led to their death, and they don't feel that they can they can challenge? Well, I want to start out by saying uh, I do truly believe that the obviously the majority of police officers are very solid citizens and good performers. They care about their communities. They care about their families, their countries, their citizens. But I will tell you that I do think there are far too many that have committed unwarranted violence where this, and racism, where this has been either condoned or overlooked or just no action taking at all. And I hold leadership account accountable for this, but I also hold their partners, their supervisors accountable. Because going back to my initial statement, the majority are very good. And this, this negative or negative actions or lack of actions are hurting all of these solid people. So, Sometimes, you know, I've been speaking out about this and some people want to take it the wrong way, but I've always cited on the side of law enforcement. But on the other hand, I will not remain silent for racism. And I will not sit back and say that we've done a good job weeding these people using unwarranted violence out of the positions they should probably have never been in to begin with. So, it's, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes to talk about it, but I think we've got to have open and candid dialogue if we're going to move forward on both racism and unwarranted violence. Yeah, and I know, Jim, like I said, you, know, you, you say this from 47 years um, sort of working in and around law enforcement. Yeah. Also, you train law enforcement officers in foreign countries. So I guess one thing I want to say is about your career. I know you've done a variety of different things within law enforcement, but when you go to foreign um, countries and you work with their police departments, um, what do you learn about yourself? What, why, do, why do you do that? And we know that you're in the, the twilight stages of your career. Some of the ages that I've mentioned how long you've been doing things might suggest that. But why do you sort of leave your family in the Western world and, and travel to the Middle East and to Africa and to Asia and to Europe and train those um, sort of police officers that are working in, in and around soft targets? 
Well, let me respond by saying I, I'm hoping I'm not in my twilight years yet. Well, that's, that's a later question. You, you don't seem to be slowing down. I like it. No, I, I believe that what I'm doing now, I'm still contributing to serving my country because I'm working with law enforcement, military and private sector security professionals in sharing with them my experiences of all these years, my formal education, my board certification. I'm sharing this with them in processes so that they can better protect their facilities, their communities, their country. And I feel like I'm still contributing to serving my country, which I'm very, very proud of to be a United States citizen and to serve. Yeah, and I know, you know, you spent a bit of time in, in Pakistan and various different countries. I mean, you know, you touched on sort of racism um, earlier. What do you learn about yourself when you go to these different um, countries and sort of immerse yourself in, in their culture? Is there any is there anything that sort of gets stirred up in you when you when you travel to so many different different countries? Well, let me let me back up to the House of Worship. I yes, please. A site, a website about 10 years ago. And on there, I mentioned that I'm a Christian, but I will do security work, no cost, because I, I do not charge places of worship a penny for doing any work for them. And I will, I will work with, you know, Muslims, uh, um, any Catholics, Protestants, um, the Jewish community. I don't care. There are some security people that you know may not work with some of those groups, but but I believe I'm a Christian, and I believe that Christ would want me to share my faith by helping them to improve safety and security. And that's the way I do it, and and so I don't when I when I travel overseas I don't have uh, um, I, I have good feelings for those that I work with. I work with uh, a lot of uh, Muslims, and I and I don't know if it's on my website now, but I'll say it because I think at one time it was on there. You know, they wake up in the morning, those police officers, and they put their pants on the same way I do, and they go out there and they face the same dangers we do dealing with societal problems. So why would I have, why would I discriminate against them? You know, why, you know, I want to help them be the best that they can. And, you know, aside from being, you know, working with partner nations, and I guess I hope that explains a little bit of it. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I'm going to ask you a question here about, you know, why can't you slow down? And I, I interview a lot of people, people like you, and, and most people say, you know, I'm going to get to 62 when I can claim social security, whatever it is, and I'm going to slow down and I'm going to, you know, enjoy my 401k and relax. You know, in, in the UK where I'm from, it was 65. It's most probably 70 now because they keep pushing the retirement age back. But most people have 
an age or a date in mind when I'm going to retire, I'm going to go to those holidays in Mexico, I'm going to travel with the wife, I'm going to spend more time with the grandkids. But, but you, Jim, your retirement is going off to like the Middle East and training police officers in like high risk um, countries or going to, to Africa where police officers are buying their own uniform or paying for gas in the, in the police cars and stuff. I mean, um, do, is this because you don't see you don't see retirement you just see that this is a you've got to keep using your experience and skills and keep training people i mean what is there a date where you intend to stop or you're just going to keep keep driving through i don't think so i i don't think there is a date i have a very very supportive and beautiful loving wife who i've been married to for 46 going on 47 years now who who supports me she just retired a year ago um and so that's very helpful. And we do a lot of traveling on our own together. We just got back from a 40 day international vacation where we started in Dubai and ended up in uh, South Africa. We flew home on January 6th, you know, right? Right with the COVID, Before COVID okay, yeah. going, up, going on there. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I've, I have my military experience, my law enforcement, my private security, or my, I, I should say private, uh, 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 security consulting uh, operation and uh, my education, my board certifications, I would be remiss if I did not continue to share this with people who can benefit from it. Yeah, and I know that's um, that's a challenge I see with most people when when I ask them that question. People like you, Jim, there's, there's a gene inside you where some people just can't slow down and and stop. So it's it's great to hear that you're always continuing to share your learning and experience with others, so they they get the benefit of your your experience and, and knowledge. So I'm I'm very pleased that you keep keep doing that. Uh, you know, and when you look back of your your time across all the different places where you've worked, Jim, from law enforcement for your time in the military, perhaps even your your education and the time in armored security, is there anything where you look back as a leader and say, you know, I wish I'd done that slightly differently, or um, I wish I hadn't taken so long to to do this? I mean, what do you um, what do you sort of um, what comes to your mind when you get asked that? Well. I don't get asked that question very often, but I... Well, you have today, so you've got to answer it. <laughs> if, if there was something I would do different, I would go back to my high school years. And I was a very poor student. Now, I knew I wasn't a good athlete, so I never, I, you know, I knew I couldn't excel there, but I spent more time fishing and hunting, almost as much time as I did in the classroom. But I, I could have excelled in the classroom, just like I did when I went to college and worked full time and went to college full time. And my wife and I raised two kids full time. By, my, by the way, my wife and I, she both went to college full time also and worked full time. But I, if I would have, I just wish I would have applied myself more during my high school years because I could have excelled scholastically. And if I had did that, Perhaps when I graduated, I would have went to college right away versus going in the service. And then maybe went in as an officer. And, and I mean, I, I don't have any regrets with the jobs I've had or the, you know, the, the moves I made, but I know I could have done better there, a lot better. And, and I, do, I do regret that, but you don't get uh, remakes in life. So you just take 
things and move on from where you left off and just do the best you can. Yeah, and you certainly, um, by your career since then, Jim, you, you've made up for it. I mean, you've been the, the House of Worship Chair for ASIS for, for five years, um, you know, in a, a sort of a volunteer position. And I know, looking at your resume, there's several others that you could you could list on there. And But I guess one of the things we haven't really touched on too much is around the, the faith security that you're involved in. I know you've got your website, I believe it's churchsecurityconsultant.com where your site is very different to a lot of people's site that you go to most people's websites and they're generally trying to sell you something. Uh, and what strikes me about your website, churchsecurityconsultant.com, and hopefully you'll correct me if I'm saying your web address wrong, a lot of it is you giving away free information. So, um, you know, how did you get into that? And, and so what makes you give give the stuff away? Well, with, with the... Uh church security uh, consultant singular.com I wanted to find a way that I could help places of worship improve their safety and security without me being there because I'm off doing other things but I didn't want to just walk away from them so this website was designed unlike others where you know you write a brief article and you're hoping somebody calls and say hey you know, I read your article. It sounds good. Can you, you know, talk to me and help me? I want, if they want to send me a message and I can schedule a free, no cost uh, evaluation of their place of worship, I'll do that. You know, they have to pay my expense to fly there, the airfare and the hotel, but they don't pay me a nickel. But I don't have time a lot of times. So I want them to have that information and just take it, run with it, use it, and make their places of worship better yeah and like i said it's great that you you really do that and you know one of the as i'm talking to you one of the questions that's come into my mind is that you've done so much um for others you know you give away a lot of your time um you know you you go and help um countries less fortunate than the us and my homeland in in the uk and you spend a lot of time in the middle east and in africa uh, what would you want to be your legacy jim what would you want to be known known about known by you know, I'm not perfect. I don't know nearly as much about security profession as I would like to, but uh, I, I really am trying to uh, be the best I can be and learn as much as I can and share that information with as many as I can. If that's my legacy, I'll be very, very uh, pleased with that. Now, thank you, Jim, and it's been good uh, and a pleasure and honor to talk to you today. So if people want to learn more about some of the work that you do, where can they find you? Well, um, it's best to uh, send me an email because normally if I, I would be traveling somewhere, but um, the two websites, ACE, A-C-E, Security Consultants, plural, dot com, or ChurchSecurityConsultant.com. It's got all my information, my CVs on there, um, you know, and and. You know, like I say, I'll help wherever I can um, with the time that I'm allowed. Uh, you know, I answer questions from all over the world that I receive uh, regarding security and safety, not only for places of worship, just for, for anything, any facility. Well, Jim McGuffey, the House of Worship um, Committee Chair for ASIS, thank you for joining me today and I uh, wish you well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. Thank you.